0: The Moneyweb Be a Better Investor Podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rick Fanika.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor Podcast. It's the podcast where I speak to professional investors about their investment journeys and why they pursue a career in managing other people's money. We also peek into their personal investment portfolios and discuss their best and worst investments ever. The idea is to find those golden nuggets from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Jacques Conradi. He's a Chief Executive Officer and a Portfolio Manager at Peregrine Capital, He is an actuary and he started his career in 2006 with Old Mutual, but joined Peregrine a year later in 2007. And he's pretty smart. In 2005, he was awarded the Chancellor's Medal for being the top graduating student at the University of Stellenbosch. And he represented South Africa in several international mathematics and informatics Olympiads. Jacques is a member of the investment committee of the Mandela Rhodes Foundation. And he is also a CFO charter holder. Jacques, thank you so much for joining uh, us today. Uh, So you are an actuary. And like most actuaries, you started your career in the life assurance industry. But you quickly moved to become an investment manager. Uh, that was pretty quick. Uh, why did you make the switch? And I assume it wasn't for the money.
0: Hi, Rake, and thank you for the kind introduction. Um, you know, what? when I went to university and to study actuarial science, I thought I was going to obviously have a career at an insurance company. And and actually, what changed that was at the in the final. Second half of our first year, there was a stock exchange game at Stellenbosch. anyone that did a, a BCom degree, including actually, I did that one that too. <laughs> Did you? Okay, okay, yeah. So they, they still had it when I was there. So I think there's about two thousand participants, and and look, I, I love games. So I think they gave, gave us ten thousand rand of, of of play money and on on a system to build a portfolio, um, and I think you had three months um, to see who the top performer was. Um, and so initially what I did is I just built a balanced portfolio. I think I bought BHP and Anglo and Nuspers and, and a few big names. And then I think like a month or two in it was fine. I was up 5% and I was in the top 10% of the students. But I'm, I'm a pretty competitive guy and I, and I like winning. And, and only, with this game, there was only prize money for the top three students. So I then actually realized that to win this game, you can't actually have a diversified portfolio as is normally right investments. You have to try to be the one in 2000. So I basically sold all the my whole diversified portfolio and then specifically said, okay, how can I find a way to win? I, I looked for a small cap shares that was potentially gonna have a, a results announcement in the in the month that's left in the competition and hope for some good news. And I then put 100% of my portfolio into a small cap share and fortunately, they, they came out with good results and it rocketed and I ended up winning the, the competition. So What share was that? that? I, I actually can't remember. It was like a, there was like a $0.10 cent share, right? Because I thought the lower the share in cents, the higher <laughs> it goes, the, the more likely it is to go up a lot, which ended up being right. But I, I thought it was obviously some small company that probably doesn't exist anymore uh, right now. So that got me kind of hooked on, on investing. And then after that, I went to my dad and said, look, I had some luck in this competition, even though it was… Uh, it was almost finding a way to win rather than investing responsibly, and then started managing my money. And his after that. So I think, but I think that game certainly got me hooked to say there's something exciting here, and and it's going to keep me excited. Did well,
1: you win yeah. that competition?
0: Yes, I actually won it in my first and second year. I played again the second year, so two years in a row using the same strategy.
1: But tell us about your background. Where did you grow up, and when did you start to get uh, excited about finance and took the decision to follow a finance and investment career?
0: So, right, I grew up in, in a town called Kells River, about twenty minutes from Stellenbosch. Uh, went went to school there, and I think well, pretty much um, fr- from a young age, really loved loved numbers and, and math. So. I kind of thought uh, it would be something either scientific or in, in the finance direction way where that would be best used. And I think my dad advised me to to say rather go do something in finance at least some interesting careers um, and end up picking actuarial science uh, to do that. but look at, at that stage you don't know that much about the world and about the careers out there so i was I was fairly open minded on what I would go and do one day at that stage still so I probably still thought I was was going to do spend twenty or thirty years at a business like Old mutual or, or sunlum. So the stock exchange game then then got me really interested. Um, obviously, investing some money during university also went well. And I think there, what happened is we we built the the portfolio for myself and my dad in, in 2003. Um, I think I bought Richmond and Invested. You just I bought some of the kind of names that I read in the financial press about. You didn't don't didn't know that much about analyzing companies yet. And um, and then I think from 2003 to six, that portfolio did like I don't know two or three times. Um, and I thought, she I know something about investing." But actually, I was just lucky enough to buy at the bottom of a bear market in the middle of 2003, and to to sell close to the top of the bull market. So I think, with hindsight, it shows you how important market timing it is, is and also the the luck versus skill element in markets. If you if you catch the timing right, um, it can work well for you. So I think that experience and the game then then got me interested. And then when I started working on mutual, I just very quickly realised that the the life insurance game was, was too static and I wasn't going to have fun uh, doing that. I'm going to have to find something that's more stimulating where there's new things happening and then made the move.
1: So if I understand you correctly, you went to varsity, you won two investment games and then you started to manage your father's money.
0: Yeah, that that that's correct. It was, so I had a little bit of money that I won in maths olympiads and from a small business that I started and ran in grade 12 and first year. So I had a little bit of my own and then he had um, some money out, out of his pension. I mean, not a lot, but a, a decent amount. And we said, let's pull that together. Let's save us on trading costs. And he, he hadn't done any investing. So he said, okay, you seem to have done okay in this game. Let's have a go with our real money. And uh ended up working out quite well, but as I said with with hindsight, that was probably more luck than skill because we caught the timing right for a bull market. It's always easier to make money in a bull market um, but yeah I appreciated his trust and I think having that trust in me um, and letting me do it at university certainly helped me um, pick that career when the when the time came to make the choice.
1: Most investment managers or portfolio managers study investment management, or many are CAs, but not many are actuaries. Of course, actuaries look at numbers in significant depth. But uh, do you think that gives you an edge over other asset managers, uh, the fact that you are an actuary and and maybe look at uh, investment opportunities differently?
0: That's an interesting question, right? Like so, in actuarial science, your last three subjects you can choose how to specialise. And I think, given that I was into investments, I chose investments and finance for all the last three subjects. So I did do some investment-focused work. But I do think being an actuary gives you a slightly different perspective, where you can view things more from a risk perspective, which is a core thing of what actuaries manage is the risk related to investments. And also, I think our job is to think of more things that can happen then does happen. So let's say when you do a life policy, you must think of all the possible ways that something can go wrong. So I think having that perspective helps. But at the end, having a diverse team is quite important. So it's not like actuaries are the best. I think in our team, we've got engineers, uh, chartered accountants, actuaries, and then some people that studied investment management. So actually having a diverse set of viewpoints in a team, I think is actually a a key advantage versus just having everyone thinking the same way.
1: I've spoken to many professional investors over the years, and many are highly, highly qualified. Um, And they also uh, follow a very, very bottom up approach through which they analyze the financial performance of companies. But yet a surprisingly small number of professional investors beat the the indices uh, consistently. Uh, Why do you think that is uh, the case?
0: So it comes down to, in my opinion, the fact that at the end, if you sum up all the returns of all the funds out there, by definition, you will get the return of the market because that's what the market provides. And then obviously, investment managers charge fees. So the sum of the results of all the asset managers in any one market, by definition, will always be below the return of the overall market. Um, And effectively, that means you are competing with other smart people when you pick stocks. Because every share that I buy, someone's selling that to me. And so clearly that person has a negative view and I'm, I've i got a positive view. So almost every transaction someone is taking at the time you do it, the exact opposite view. So the, the only way to outperform is then to uh, probably a combination of things, but if I have to say two or three is, is you must be highly driven and very hardworking to, to make sure you hustle harder and, and find information that the other person doesn't have. Uh, you must have a, a great investment philosophy as to to how you pick stocks. And then a very key thing is having the emotional stability to implement it in the correct way, um, not get over-exuberant when, when things are good, not get too cautious when prices are low and markets are cheap. So executing all of that. But it, look, it's, it's, a, it's a hard game. It's, it's not an easy game uh, to, to outperform in, that's for sure.
1: But how do you get information about companies or investment opportunities which other asset managers don't? Don't you just look at the financial statements because that is available
0: to all? Yes, yeah, so that is certainly what's probably made our performance harder and what's made it easier for the retail investor. I think it's the fact that information has become more freely available. So even when I started at Perigan Capital, that's 15, 16 years ago now, we had a library where we had the annual reports of every listed company going back for the last 10 years. So at that stage, that was an edge. You had to actually go show up at the JSE or the company's results and get a copy or, or ask the company to, to, to send you a physical copy of its annual report. So even back then, maybe just having the financials was an edge. Right now it's it's so easy. You can go into any company's investor relations website and, and get that information. So that part of the informational, uh, I think, edge is narrowed. However, I think there is a benefit in doing deeper research on a company. So trying to find clients of that company, let's say if it's a retailer speaking to shoppers or speaking to people that shop at different retailers, what's the edge? We often get great information speaking to competitors. So let's stick with the retail space. You ask Fushimi what's Mr. Price or Truist doing right or wrong? Or you ask them what's Willie's or, or them doing right or wrong? So getting the complete picture from everyone in the industry and from clients um, and speaking to anyone else in it, if, I think if you put together all that pieces of information, it still puts you in a slightly better position than someone just going through the financials.
1: And that strategy has seemed to work really well for you and Peregrine, because one of the funds is a 100 bagger, which means it grew by 100 times over a period of 20 years. Uh, it was the first fund in South Africa to do so.
0: Tell us a bit about this fund. So, right, the fund's done ten thousand percent, which is about a hundred it 's about a hundred times your initial investment. A million rand in day one would be about one hundred and twenty five million rand um, right now so it, it really comes down to consistent compounding. I mean you know the power of compound interest um, and, and how that adds over time, and a very simple rule of thumb. But we haven't quite hit that, but it's if you can compound by 25% per year, that means every 10 years you've got 10 times your money. So that's a, a rough rule of thumb I use in terms of targeting investments. But even at 15% per year, it means you're going to do roughly four times a year every, every 10 years, which is probably a more, somewhat more credible target. Um, so basically, you've got to be consistent. You've got to try to year in, year out, do somewhere within 10 and 30% returns. And a key thing is never having a massive drawdown. That's really how you get put way behind. If you have a thirty down 30, you're down 50% year. Because we all know the rule is if you lose 50%, you actually got to make 100% to get back to the same amount of money. So being consistent year in, year out, compounding without big negative years uh, gets you there. And obviously getting to the, those numbers every year, we, we can go into that if, if you want. But almost as a start, you've got to be consistent, not have big negative years, and make sure you, you work, you're moving forward every single year.
1: I think that is a very good point. If a share drops by 50%, it needs to rise by 100% to get back to a break-even point. But when a share falls or the market enters a bear market, Many amateur retail investors become very nervous and emotional because you see your portfolio values decline sometimes very, very rapidly. And that makes people very, very nervous. And uh, then they act uh, emotionally. How do you handle such a drawdown in the market within the portfolios you manage?
0: Right. This is probably the hardest thing, in my opinion, in investment. It, it's very hard for retail investors. It's almost just as hard for professional investors. Um, and it's probably one of the things that that's the biggest lesson that I learned early in my career. I remember when I joined the industry, you would look at the long term graphs of both the market and visual shares, and you would always see the low points and you'd see the high points. And you, you would always just wonder, why don't people just buy low and why don't they just sell high? That's that's in the end how you make money. You've got to buy low and you have to sell high. But what they don't tell me with the graphs is at that low point, you are just seeing negative news about other company or the index, everyone around you selling, everyone's telling you to sell, every bone in your body wants to sell um, at the low point. And and then when things are euphoric and high, then you're just seeing good news on a company and a good news on on the market and, and you actually want to buy more. So that explains why the graphs look like they do and also why most people do the exact opposite, because this is our human tendencies make us want to do the opposite thing of of what we should do. So almost the, the single biggest thing for a retail investor is finding a way to be able to step back from the noise, look at the bigger picture and say, geez, things are actually down a lot now. I know I'm seeing a lot of bad news, but that's actually why they're down. Can I look through that and at least hold my portfolio and not sell at the low. And I think if, you, if you're very strong emotionally, then you have the ability to maybe deploy a little bit more money there. But as a start, you must almost just fight the tendency to do the wrong thing. Because I think that's over a retail investor's career, I think this is probably the single biggest mistake people make and the biggest amount of money they lose. Not the individual stocks they pick along the way. If you can just not sell at the lows and rather buy there and have the willingness to sell some when things are great, um, and, and not buy, buy more at at the high, at the high points you 're going to do much better at the end of your career, and obviously we try to do that as a business as well
1: it 's easier said than done because many yep. companies the, the share price fall for a reason, uh, and many people yes. or amateur investors would say, "Listen, let me just get out if it falls another ten percent i 'll get back in and then you 've made a ten percent yield." And there are many examples of companies that have really imploded in many ways. Uh, so you still need to have the confidence to sell at a low because uh, you would expect it to go lower. How do you take emotion out of that decision?
0: A hundred percent. That's where the trick comes in, is that sometimes it is right to sell a share that's fallen a lot already because things can get a, a lot worse. Um and knowing try, knowing which times it's right to sell because it's going to go lower versus knowing which time at w- in which cases all the bad news are already in the price and you're actually selling at the low, that is such a hard thing. And even professional investors, no one can get that right all the time. I mean, I think we try to be right 7 out of 10 times in those kind of decisions. Maybe 7 to 8 is, is what you can get, but you're still going to make mistakes along the way. And I think to your earlier point, when share prices are low, you're guaranteed that the news will always be bad. That is exactly why the share price is low. So that you're actually never in your career going to get an easy one where the price is low, but the news is great. The price is always low. The price is worse when the news is worse is one of my my favorite sayings in the office. So you need to be able to dig through that bad news and to say, are we oversold here? Is there too much bad news? And is the chance of the news getting better significant? I mean, I I think Sassol in the two years ago in COVID was a great example where it fell from 300 to 30 and at 30 there it looked like there was real trouble. There's a real chance they have to do a rights issue. There's a chance the company might even go under because they, they did the silly investment of a chemical plant in the U.S. where they overspent and took on lots of debt. Um, but that wasn't, with hindsight, the, the, the time to buy it when the news was at, at the worst point. But it, it's, it's very, very hard at the time.
1: There are two big examples, I think, which uh, fits that profile. Sasol, most definitely, and Kumba. Kumba also fell virtually, I think it, it turned at uh, 26 Rand. Uh, or was that Sassel?
0: Uh I think Sassel turned at twenty six, but but I mean, both the previous sellers, financial prices and two thousand eight, I think Kumba also fell ninety and, percent and ended up going up ten times again after that. So uh, yeah, so you're right, I can't remember the exact loan Kumba.
1: But then you also have examples like Steinhoff, Tongat, Hewlett, EOH where there wasn't a rebound. Uh and, and that is uh, I think that is the, the question. Uh, do you look at the numbers? Do you look at uh, or what do you look at to come to the conclusion that it was oversold and there could be a bounce back?
0: Those are, are, are very hard ones. And in the, in the, that's probably where, where true investment skill comes in, where especially on some of those you mentioned, EOH, Steinoff. I think fortunately we were avoided both, both of those and EOH, we actually made some money on the short side because we specifically this, this EOH, I think Steinoff has been well discussed but they were manipulating their earnings with acquisitions. So they they kept buying companies. Um, uh, they were doing 10 or 20 acquisitions a year. And then what we realized by going through the financials in, in great detail is they were playing around with companies' um, accounts when they bought them. So when you buy a company, you can actually put some accounting entries in before you bring it onto your books to, to sort out their accounts and get them in good shape. So what they would do is things like they buy a new company, The day before they buy it, they make a 100 million rand provision that a certain client will not be paid. And so you make a bad debt provision. So that's a loss, but the loss is not in your books because the company is not not owned by you. Then you bring the company into your books. And the next week, right, you release the 100 million rand provision because your client will pay you back. And there you've made 100 million rand of profit. So you can book that in the income statement. Um, but obviously, um, the auditors should pick that up, the auditors didn't, I think it was a small audit firm, I can't remember the name now, and where you can then pick it up is you can pick it up in the cash flow line, because that 100 million rand sits in the company's income statement, but there's no cash, it was a fake accounting entry. And we picked up that for two or three years, they were printing a billion rand of profits a year, and there was zero cash profits every year. And we, we explored it with management, they just dodged our questions, and you could see, okay, there, there's going to be trouble here when when this party ends. So in that case, you could see and We actually stayed short, even I think 90 percent down, 95 percent down because you just knew it was a house of cards. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, I think that's those are ones where you, you probably need to really understand the accounts and be able to dig through them to to figure out what's going on.
1: But amateur investors can't do that. They just don't have the access. And in I think most cases, not the knowledge to to spot those uh, anomalies.
0: Yeah, look, I think that specific case, I I would 100% agree with you that it's a tough one for amateur investors. But overall, I think there are advantages that amateur investors have versus large investors. One of them is you can take a long-term time horizon. In many cases... Uh, let's say large investment institutions, you're so worried about your quarterly performance that you're trying to manage short-term performance versus the long run. So that's an edge that retail investor can have is say, I want to make good money over three or five years, I'm going to invest for the long run. And then also liquidity. You can get into shares easily. You can get in and get out much more easily than a large institution with hundreds of billions can. So I think those are advantages and it's best that one focuses on, as an individual, focus on companies you understand, focus on businesses you can go see in the real economy, Because you're not just buying a a ticker on the JSE, you're buying a stake in a real business. So stick with companies you understand, businesses you think will do well. And I think that's that's the place where retail investors can do well, rather than maybe playing on the short side or in these complicated accounting um, shares.
1: Let's talk about your personal investment portfolio. What is your approach there? Because uh, obviously during the daytime, you manage other people's money, their pension money. Uh, But what is your approach when you invest for yourself?
0: So Ray, most of my money and most of us uh, with you and the team, most of my money is invested in in the funds um, alongside investors, so that's the bulk of my of my net worth is sitting there and then what we have is we've got an, um personal share portfolios where you can take more amplified views on companies you really like and I think for everyone in the team, what we also see, the positive we see around personal trading is you get to make mistakes and have successes. That's not impacting client money. So you can learn some extra lessons that's going to make you a better investor. I mean, we, we have quite strict holding periods. We You've got to hold a share for three months um, after you bought it to, to prevent people from just trading and, and thinking uh, for the long run. So personally, what you'll find me doing is typically the very best ideas that's in our fund. I will, once we finish buying for the fund, I'll buy more of them personally. I can take slightly higher volatility than... Um, than, let's say, what we uh, promise investors in the fund where we want to deliver a fairly stable outcome. I don't care for significant volatility, so I'll typically buy our top two or three ideas um, and go fairly big there. So my personal portfolio is always very concentrated, and you'll often find something being 50% or more of it um, one, one share. So that I run more concentrated because a big part of my wealth is in our fund where it is diversified.
1: Uh, can you tell us what your main holdings are in your own
0: portfolio? So, I think um right now I'm sitting on a lot of cash right, because i'm somewhat cautious on overall market levels, but let's say for the last eighteen months till about a, till, till the fourth quarter last year it probably you'll probably have found seventy percent or eighty percent of my personal portfolio and in, in one share being Tgala coal um it was just um, It was probably in my investment career that the the most mispriced opportunity we had ever seen when we put the position in, and um, in, in, I think this was June 2021, when we established the position, um, it, it was just completely mispriced where you could see something where maybe you could lose 30% of the share, but if the cold price turns, you could make 10 times your money. So went went in with meaningful size there, and then the key thing is knowing which winners you actually let run. So this one, I think probably went up 15 times in the end and, Actually, rather than sell, I just bought more along the way and on every step of the way till I eventually cut it. Because it's almost one of those things that I've learned in investments is a large part of your gains will come from the key few investments you make over your career. And when you see one of them, you kind of got to go for the jugular and and, and go big if you're sure you're right. And this was one of those. So right now, so I fully sold that. So actually, I'm sitting on probably 70, 80% cash. Um, Right now, I mean, some of the things I have is I still like NASPERS and Process in South Africa. So most of my remaining SA portfolio is actually just that. And then globally, um, I, I own some Facebook and Meta and I actually do like the the food delivery shares. That's been very weak in the last few years. Um, delivery Euro and, and Justy Takeaway, they're, they're two European food delivery companies, uh, are two ones that I own.
1: Yeah, uh, I think Nasdaq nice and process are also examples of shares that uh, were oversold and uh, very, very uh, dependent on what was happening in China. So, uh, and and you held on to those shares during the dip they experienced uh, over the past few years, or until actually a, a year ago, when the share prices recovered uh, significantly.
0: I did hold on, but it, it wasn't easy to, to hold on. Let me tell you that there were certainly some doubts, and then. Um, I guess with hindsight, you certainly should have bought more and uh, unfortunately didn't, didn't, didn't have the willingness to buy more. And I, I think the main thing that worried us there was uh, what direction the CCP were taking. It, it looked like they were really anti Tencent and anti the tech companies. Unfortunately for South African investors in the last three or four months, they rapidly changed their tune. And that was one of those where it's very hard to predict that if they kept going like last year and put the squeeze on Tencent, it would have been different. Um, so, but, but fortunately, fortunately, at least I'll held on.
1: Now, I'm going to ask you the question I ask every single professional investor who participate in this podcast, and I always get a giggle. You've just said your best investment uh, or one of your best investments ever was Tungela. But what has been your worst investment, the biggest dog you've ever bought?
0: There's maybe two I can give you, uh, even though it's not as easy to talk about. There's the giggle. <laughs> 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 um yeah it's, it's less fun to talk about these right than the the good ones so um so my probably most memorable loss was um just after Sabania gold was listed um i I modeled out at the at the then gold price and the volumes they were producing in the rand dollar. I modeled out, and I thought, okay, but this is a loss making business they they can't make money, their cost structure is too high versus the current gold price, and I thought, if this is a loss making company, why is the share not zero so I think I shorted the share at, at 10 rand the share. I think in the, the first month or two, it, it, it went to 8 rand or 7 rand. I thought, geez, I'm, I'm clever here. And sure. then I can't remember the driver, the, the rand dollar turn and the gold price turn, and this thing just became an absolute rocket. And I think it literally doubled off the low very quickly to, to 16 rand. And that's where I luckily cut my loss on, on the short circuit. Okay, this is this is way too volatile for me. I've, I've made a mistake here. So fortunately, I had the willingness to stop loss. At, but it's 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 much higher now, right? And so the powerful lesson there was: shorting is a dangerous game. If you put a if you put 1, in a thousand rand in a normal share, the most you can lose is a thousand. And if you get a Nuspers or a Capitec, you can make ten thousand. If you short a share for a thousand. The most you can make is 1000 but you can actually lose 5000 or 10000 The short shorting, the asymmetry works the other way. You can lose more than you put in. So that's why I think shorting is not for the average retail investor. And even for professionals, you, you need to have experience with it. You need to know what you're doing and you need to monitor it, it, it very closely. And it also taught me about investing in resource companies. How quickly the outlook can change if the commodity price or the Rand dollar changes. So it was probably a good lesson to help me spot some gala down the line, but it, it certainly was a painful one. Um, and then I'll, I'll maybe give you one more to show that we also make lots of mistakes. Um, is is Facebook, which is now Meta. That that's probably right now Facebook's trading at the price I initially bought it five or six years ago. But uh, as you'd know, I think I bought it at 120. It went all the way to about 400. dollars So I was up three, four times, and it's back at my entry price right now. And and the lesson there is you must just be willing to sell even shares you love or even shares you've done well You must be willing to sell them at the top. You must break that emotional connection. You say, I'm doing this to make investment returns and you better get out. Um, And so many many shares can reverse all the gains you've made if you don't take profits when they're there. So I think that's another key one. Like a Tungela, if it gets to your target price, you bang it out, you bank all the profits and you sit in cash and you wait for the next idea.
1: We'll have to leave it there, Jacques. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today. There have been several golden nuggets I think I'm going to use, although my portfolio is not a hundred bagger, not even close. But uh, I think many investors can learn from what you've said today. And thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you very much, Rick I really enjoyed it.
1: That was Jacques Conradi. He is the Chief Executive Officer and a Portfolio Manager at Peregrine Capital.
0: Show me the money. <laughs> That was the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast with Rate for NICAP. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.